All right, good morning, everyone. Great to be back in Kingscliff. I am seeing so many people, and some of whom I haven't seen for years and years, and not just since I left, like Rhiannon's back there. I mean, I haven't seen her for, I don't know, five or six years. Uh, Great to be here. It feels very surreal. I'll just say a few quick things um, by way of introduction, and then we'll get into the sermon. So none of this is sermon time, but I do want to spend a few moments just sort of telling you what it's, what it's been like for me the last five or six days to be back in Australia. First of all, um, I think you could put me in like a sensory deprivation chamber and put me on a plane, and I don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing. You could get me off of the plane, and if I just had one smell of the air at the Gold Coast Airport, I would know immediately where I was. There, there's a smell in us, and it's a beautiful smell, by the way. Uh, it's not smelly. It's just amazing, the, the, the smell, the, the, the humidity in the air. And then I started hearing these accents. I had forgotten how ridiculous the Australian accent was. <laughs> it's amazing. I just love it. It's just so exaggerative and absurd. I love it. Um, just the other day, I was talking to somebody, and, and they just happened to say one of the favorite things that I love to hear Australians say. Just, it just came up in conversation. They said, power lines. Oh yeah, mate, the power lines. It's just like, say it again, say it again. And so anyway, and nine, and how are you guys? I just love it. So it's great to be back, and it's been so wonderful to see people. People have been coming up, not just Kevin Johnson, but even Andrew Weeks voluntarily gave me a hug. I feel like I've trained you. I think even you gave me a hug, Daz, or did I give you a hug? You, I gave you a hug. Okay, well, we'll work on you next time, next time. So anyway, it's been so good to be back. I've been FaceTiming Violetta, who would have come with me, but she's on a sort of um, spring break trip with the boys. Their spring break coincided together, Landon's and Jables. Jables in high school, Landon in university. And so they wanted to, they basically spent 10 days sort of going through the national parks of Utah. And uh, so she's just absolutely jealous. I've been telling her, it's so good to see everybody and uh, just to smell the smells, to hear the accents, to hear the bird calls. Wow, I forgot how loud Australian birds are. They're so loud. It's just, it's amazing. So great to be here. Uh, We spent the first week at Arise, and um, it went, I think it went really well. How did it go, students? Did it go all right? Yeah, okay, a little more enthusiasm would have been appreciated, but I'll take that. (laughs) From my perspective, it went amazingly well. I guess from their perspective, it went, you know, in the sort of typical understatement of Australians, it went all right. Um, So we spent basically all of our time in the Old Testament. And I'm right in the middle now of a read-through, the book Patriarchs and Prophets, written by Ellen White, published in 1890, called OT with DA. And I'm lining up a few of you here to join me in the last uh, couple weeks of OT with DA. So I've been spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. And so what, I, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to go to the New Testament. And uh, I, I've actually really wrestled with what to preach and what to present. And I'll be, I'll be really honest with you here. I kind of had this idea that I wasn't going to preach when I came, um, but Lyndon wasn't having that. He said, under no circumstances, you have to preach. I said, a lot of these people have heard me preach for like seven years. They're probably, they're probably over it. And uh, so he said, no, you have to preach. So then I was like, okay, well, what should I preach? And I couldn't think of many things that I hadn't already preached in this church. And uh, so I asked a few friends, and they were mostly unhelpful. Um, 
So I knew, I knew I wanted to talk about something in, in the New Testament just because I've been spending so much time both in the Arise class this last week and then in OT with DA in the Old Testament. And I love the Old Testament. We've had a great time this last week in the Old Testament. Right, Arise students? Yeah. Oh, there we go. That's a little better. Um, so I want to walk you through one of my very favorite stories, uh, sort of interactions that Jesus had in the New Testament. It's actually, a, uh, it'll be a variation of a sermon that I preached years and years ago but I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I went back over it this morning and I was praying and I was like, because I was up early this morning doing OT with DA and I was like, Lord, I really need you to come through here. What am I gonna preach? What am I gonna present? And I just had a real peace about it. So um, I hope it's a blessing to you all. Great to be here. Great to be back. Um, let's start with prayer and then we'll get right into the text of scripture. It's gonna be great fun. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you. We worship you. Uh, Father, the music, as Kevin said, the music has already been so beautiful and so soothing. Father, sometimes we just need those worship services where they're pensive, they're reflective, and we just, we just pause and say, wow, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus, and I am who you say I am. So Father, now as we turn our attention to the text of Scripture, I pray yet again, Father, you have blessed us so many times in this place, in your word, with this community. I pray that you would show up again. Uh, we believe you will by your spirit. May the spirit that inspired now become the spirit that instructs. And this is my prayer, Father, a tailor-made message for each person here that's attentive. In Jesus' name, let everyone say amen. amen and amen. All right, open your Bibles to the book of Luke. I think that's in the New Testament, isn't it? Book of Luke, Luke chapter 18. And we're going to go over a familiar story, but perhaps in an unfamiliar way. So we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. This will be easy to remember. It'll begin in verse 18. So Luke 18, 18. And we're going to start, this presentation will be today in Luke chapters 18 and 19. And we're going to start with it, what is for many a familiar story, and that is the interaction that G the dialogue and the interaction that Jesus has with a man whose name we do not know, but we just refer to him colloquially as the rich young ruler. Uh, for our purposes here today, maybe we'll call him Richard. Okay, so the rich young ruler, Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And as we walk through this familiar story, and I know that for many of you, you'll say, yep, yep, I've, I know this story, I've heard this story. Uh, you might even love this story. We're just gonna ask ourselves three questions. How many questions, everyone? Three questions. The first one's going to be, what is the reason, because we'll be contrasting a story in Luke 18, the rich young ruler, with a story in Luke 19, which I'll describe in just a little bit. But in each case, both instances, we're going to ask ourselves the same three questions. Question number one is, what is the reason that this person approaches Jesus? We're going to try and ascertain the motive, right? And it'll be pretty easy, actually. The second question we'll ask is, what is their response to the interaction with Jesus? So number one, reason. Number two, response. And then the third and final question, we'll ask sort of in summary, what's the result of the interaction? Okay, so reason, response, result. What is it, everyone? Reason, response, result. All right, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. Let's walk through this. It's gonna be a lot of fun. It says, now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now in the Matthew account of this, which also occurs, I think, in Matthew chapter 18. So Luke 18 and Matthew 18. In the Matthew account, there's, a, there's an additional word here. It's good teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And uh, here in the Luke account, it's just what must I do to inherit eternal life? So right at the outset, I, I love that, that the rich young ruler's language alerts us to how he views Jesus. 
He certainly does not think that Jesus is God in the flesh, right? He has no notion here, no theological notion here of the incarnation. He doesn't believe, as John will later say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No, he sees Jesus as one of many rabbis that were sort of available in first century Judaism. And so he approaches this provocative, young, somewhat controversial rabbi, and he has a question for him. He says, good teacher... And there is, if you detect a little hint of flattery there, I think you're reading the text correctly. Good teacher, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And so right here at the outset, we can already sort of address ourselves to the first of our three questions. What was the first question? What is the reason? And so in answer to that question, why is it that the rich young ruler approaches Jesus? What is he wondering? He's wondering about eternal life. Like he's basically canvassing Jesus like he might canvass some other uh, rabbis that were available in that time and in that day and age. And he's saying, hey, what do you think? What's your opinion? What's your perspective? Right? I've heard from this rabbi A and I've heard from this other rabbi B and I've heard from this rabbi C. Good teacher, what's your opinion? What's your perspective on this idea of the afterlife? How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus, of course, ascertains the social situation perfectly. He knows that this is a question of curiosity, it's a question of inquiry, but it's not a question of sincere humility and brokenness. And so he puts his finger right on the pulse of the social situation. Verse 19, so Jesus said to him, and what's the first word? Why? Right? And, And that word gets right to the heart of what's going on here. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus here, just at least temporarily, bypasses the actual question itself, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he says, hey, just a question about your addressing me. Why is it that you're calling me good? Well, I can assure you that this conversation, as so many conversations with Jesus, this conversation is already going very differently than the rich young ruler thought it would go. Right, you get the sense here, and this will unfold as the narrative sort of moves forward. You get the sense here that the rich young ruler, there's a certain confidence, there's a certain, um, he's approach, you know, he's an entrepreneurial person, he's probably a successful business person. Again, we don't know his name, we just call him colloquially the rich young ruler. You sense that he's coming to Jesus, and he imagines that it, at least at some level, this is a conversation of peer to peer, right? Reasonably successful person with a, you know, a, a wise rabbi. And so he approaches him with, you know, no small hint of flattery and says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he imagines in his mind that this conversation will go a certain way, right? He just sort of imagines this is how it's going to play out. And Jesus immediately deviates from the expectation by not answering his question. He gets right to the heart of the issue and says, hey, why is it, in fact, that you're calling me good? There is none that is good but God. He alone is good. And I can imagine that this would have been disorienting and at least temporarily destabilizing for the rich young ruler. He's, uh, yeah, uh, you know, and Jesus often does this. You find this as a pretty consistent theme in the interactions with Jesus in the Gospels. People think the conversation, they think the interaction is going to go one way, and with a simple question, with, a, with even a look or with a healing, he reorients the whole social landscape and people are destabilized. And so Jesus says, you know, I'm in verse uh, 20 now, you know the commandments, okay? So why are you coming to me asking a question that has already been revealed in Torah, in the Old Testament? You know the answer, right? And your curiosity, your, your inquiry about the nature of, of eternal life, you already know. You know the commandments. And then let's just go through these briefly, if, if you would join me. 
Um, the first one he says here, and in the Matthew account, these are in exact order, but they're out of order here slightly in the Luke account. So we're in verse 20. So he says, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery. Does anybody remember which number commandment that is? Okay, very good. That's seven. Excellent. Uh, and then do not murder. What number is that? Six. Very good. And then do not steal. Eight. Very good. Do not bear false witness. Nine. And then honor your father and your mother, which is number what? Five. So here's the interesting thing. Again, here, here in, in Luke's account, it goes seven, six, eight, nine, five. But in Matthew's account, it goes six, seven, eight, nine, five. Now, Jesus has already said that this healthy, wealthy, Jewish young man knows the commandments. He knows that, that the rich young ruler is familiar with Torah. He's familiar with the writings of Moses and certainly familiar with the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. And so he says to them, he says to him, you know, and then Jesus proceeds to do something that's absolutely fascinating. To further destabilize the situation and disorient the rich young ruler, he says, you know the commandments, and then I'll just use the Matthew account here for simplicity. He says, six, seven, eight, nine. Now, if you didn't already know that honor your father and your mother comes next, what would be the expectation about what would come next? Yeah, yeah, obviously, right? In that pattern, if it goes six, seven, eight, nine, you expect 10. I mean, even with the Lucan account, seven, six, eight, nine. You know, you, you can almost feel the pregnancy there, the pause, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You know that 10 is coming, but instead of going to 10, he reverts back to five. Now, it's a guarantee that this would not have been lost on the rich young ruler. It's just an absolute guarantee that Jesus would move through the, the second tablet of the law, right? So in the first tablet of the law, we have the first four commandments, which is the commands that orient us vertically, no other gods, no graven images, no taking the name of God in vain. Remember the Sabbath, first tablet of the law. Second tablet of the law is not how we orient ourselves vertically, but how we orient ourselves horizontally. And Jesus has just gone six, seven, eight, nine, and then what did he do? Five. Well, this is purposeful, right? This isn't just serendipitous. It's purposeful. He leaves out the 10th commandment, purposefully, provocatively. Now, somebody remind me, what is the 10th commandment? Does anybody remember? Yeah, you shall not covet. And covet's not really a word that we use much. Well, give me some synonyms here for covet. Don't be, okay, don't be greedy, right? Covetousness is an inordinate desire for material things. And in the 10th commandment about covetousness, it, it itemizes, you know, don't covet your neighbor's this, don't covet your neighbor's this, don't covet your neighbor. Don't want what you don't already have, okay? In other words, it's a command that is targeted at avarice, targeted at greed, targeted at the desire for material wealth. A rich young ruler approaches Jesus and says, what do I have to do to in inherit eternal life? Jesus quickly destabilizes the conversation and says, why do you call me good? None are good but God. And then he says, but you already know the answer to this question. You know the commandments, six, seven, eight, nine, five. And then Jesus is quiet. It's a guarantee that the rich young ruler is now totally and perfectly aware that the 10th commandment has been purposefully left off of this list, which just happens to be the very commandment that the rich young ruler struggles with. 
And now he realizes that this is not going to be a canvassing of one among many, you know, rabbis of the day. He is standing, as it were, naked. There's actually a text in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that says that we are all naked before God. That's just the Bible's way of saying that God knows us, God sees us. We will return to that point in just a moment. That God knows us, he knows our weaknesses, he knows our strengths, he knows our failures, he knows our past, and he knows them perfectly and he knows them exhaustively. Jesus is not here, and I don't want to go into this, I don't want to wade too deep into these theological waters, but Jesus here is not in possession of his omniscience. He has laid that aside in the incarnation, but Jesus reads the social situation perfectly and moves through the commands in such a way so as to tease out conviction, to elicit a response of of humility and of repentance, and even of, as we will see, discipleship. Well, the rich young ruler now realizes that he's dealing with, you know, this is a whole different kettle of fish than what he had anticipated. He does his best to sort of regain his composure, and I imagine he clears his throat and says nervously, all these I have kept from my youth, right? Can't you just feel that? You know, the the wind has been sucked out of the situation, right? Like things have gone upside down. And he manages to say, I've already been doing all of these things too. And this is so great. I can just imagine the biggest smile crosses the face of Jesus here. When Jesus heard these things, he said, wow. I inserted that part. That's how I read it. He says, you're only missing one thing. Oh, even that. Ooh, one thing is missing. Well, he already knows that one thing is missing. There's a commandment missing from the second tablet of the law. He's just said six, seven, eight, nine, five. And so when Jesus says, oh, you're only missing one thing. Oh, one thing. He knows where this is going. You know, it's a little bit like there's a circumstance coming. You can see it from a mile away and then it's a half a mile. You know what's coming. And the rich young ruler is not happy about it. You only lack There's just one thing standing between you and eternal life. That's why you've approached me, isn't it? That's what you're after, isn't it? You only lack one thing. All you have to do, and it's so easy, it's so simple. In fact, it's gonna be a piece of cake for a guy like you who's been doing all this from his youth up. Just sell um, all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and then you know you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. Well, this went over like a giant thud, right? The, the very thing, the one thing that the rich young ruler could not have heard in this situation is the one thing he does here, and that's the way that God works, right? There are many things that I would be totally happy for God to say to David Asherick, but there are, are some things I don't want him to say to me, and that's the thing I don't want to hear, and so I will craft my devotional life, and I'll craft my time with him, and I'll even craft the sermons I listen to or the songs that I sing around the things that I like to hear God say. And the rich young ruler imagines that this is going to be a situation somewhat like that, that he's going to hear something that will perhaps flatter his standing, flatter his, his genealogy, flatter whatever it might be. But now he has heard the one thing He can't hear. He doesn't want to hear. Oh, you only lack one thing. Oh, what a marvelous coincidence. I'm looking for disciples just like you. You're just the kind of guy I'm looking for. There's just one thing standing between you and me and and eternal life, which is what you've inquired about. Just sell all that you have. Distribute to the poor and it's going to be great. You with me? This is such a fascinating narrative. It's just so perfectly crafted for God in Christ 
to place his finger right on the very pulse of the situation. You know, Jesus is not like a doctor, uh, no offense, Nick, he's not like a doctor who's, you know, trying to diagnose, not quite sure, is it this, uh, maybe, is it this, is it this? I mean, he puts his finger right on the thing. There's no wasted words. There's not, there's not even a wasted syllable in this interaction. Right to the thing, and the rich young ruler is just paralyzed by the circumstance. He knows that he's known. He knows that he's seen. He knows that Jesus is onto him in the most intimate way. Friends, Jesus is onto all of us. He knows us. He sees us. He understands us. He knows the things that we are happy to hear and the things that we don't want to hear. He is on to us. Well, let's see how this wraps up. Uh, verse 23, but when he heard this, this, this one thing, he became, and I, I really like the repetition of the word here, he became what? What's that next word? My translation says, very sorrowful, for he was, what's the next word? Very rich, Verse 24, and when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said, man, it's really hard for rich people to be saved. Hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So there is obviously a purposeful uh, repetition of the very, the very. He was very sorrowful because he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very rich, there's a, there's a correlation here. The deep sorrow is directly correlated with the, the riches. Now, this is not to say... That, that riches and sorrow go hand in hand in every case or in every circumstance. It's also not to say that there wouldn't have been many people who would have said, oh, that's all you need? Oh, well, I'll happily sell all my, uh, liquidate my assets, happily sell everything that I have and distribute to the poor, if only to be your disciple. Jesus here is not saying that there's anything problematic or particularly sinful or proprietarily sinful about wealth. What he's saying is, is that if wealth becomes an idol, if wealth becomes the one thing, and anything can be the one thing. It's just in this case, this was the one thing. Right, so Jesus isn't putting his finger on wealth in some general sense. Uh, some of the most generous and wonderful people I know also are very wealthy people. So Jesus is not putting his finger on wealth. He's putting his finger on the one thing. We have a one thing, or maybe a two things, or maybe a three things. But Jesus says here, it's hard for a rich man to be saved, which, of course, has been, as many things in Scripture, grossly misunderstood and misinterpreted throughout the years to create a tension between wealth and affluence and godliness. There is no such tension. Not at all. Wealth is just influence. It's the opportunity to affect the world around you and to do marvelous and wonderful things if you choose to use your wealth that way. But wealth can be used in an idolatrous way. But so can physical appearance be used in an idolatrous way. So can influence, so can education, so can almost anything, sexuality. So it's not the thing, it's when the one thing gets in the way, it interposes itself between us and God. And so when Jesus says here, man, it's hard for a rich man to be saved, he could have just as easily said, it's hard for anybody to be saved who clings to the one thing. This isn't a commentary on money. It's hard for a person who holds, who clings, who retains the one thing to be saved. Now, happily for all of us, happily for all of us, the narrative goes on to say, um, when, the, when the disciples express incredulity in verse 26, well, then who could be saved? If a healthy, wealthy Jew, somebody who's familiar with law, the law, 
cannot be saved. Well, then verse 26, who could be saved? And then hallelujah for verse 27, amen? But he said, these things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Can somebody say amen? And I know we just pick that up like a stamp and we just apply it to anything and everything. But in the specific context in which we find that line, it's that God can save people that look unsavable. That's the impossible thing that God can do. Now, let's go through our, our questions. Does anybody remember what was the, it was the three questions. Number one was, what was the reason? Number two was, what was the response? And then finally, what was the end result? Okay, number one, we've already answered this, but let's just remind ourselves, what's the reason that the rich young ruler comes to Jesus? What's he after? What's he looking for? He's looking for eternal life, or at least he's looking for an opinion on eternal life. Love you too. Okay, then what's the second one? Reason and then response. Okay, so here's the question. What is the rich young ruler's response to Jesus' overtures, to Jesus' offer. He goes, he's very sorrowful, right? He receives the offer. He receives the invitation. By the way, we should say, I didn't mention this, that the invitation to follow me is not a general invitation. It's a specific invitation to discipleship, right? And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation that's actually tied to the very language of the rich young ruler, which is the language of money, economics, and finance, in the same way that when Jesus was speaking to the, uh, uh, the, the, the descendants of uh, the, the sons of Zebedee on the Sea of Galilee, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Why this language? Because they're fishermen. When Jesus is sitting at the well with the woman in John chapter four, he says, wow, if you're really thirsty, I have water that will slake your thirst so permanently you'll never thirst again. When Jesus speaks to the Roman centurion, a man of authority, a man who said to Jesus, I tell people to go and they go and come and they come. When Jesus spoke to him, he said, go. So in case after case, we find Jesus speaking the very language of the people that approach him. And unsurprisingly, he does the same thing here. When he makes the invitation to discipleship to the rich young ruler, he says, I have an investment opportunity that you cannot pass up. I, I got a great, I mean, this is one, you know, this is a stock that's on the rise this is one that is going to totally transform your portfolio. You don't want to miss this one. You will have treasure in heaven. He speaks the language of economics. He speaks the language of finance to him. And yet the response is he receives Jesus' invitation to investment with sorrow. Very sorrowful, as the text says. Okay, so number one, the reason. Number two, the response. And then number three, what's the result of the encounter? Well, the result is, is that it says that the rich young ruler went away. He walked away from Jesus. And I love the Mark account. I didn't note this, but the Mark account says that when he looked at him, he loved him. Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and the text literally says, and loved him. And then the rich young ruler proceeded to walk away. And in walking away from Jesus, he might not have understood it then, but at least in that moment, he's walking away from the very thing that he ostensibly was interested in, eternal life. Now, in the very next chapter, the very, very next chapter of Scripture, Luke chapter 19, we begin reading in verse 1, and we come across another familiar story. And scholars have noted, and uh, I, I agree, that there is incredible, purposeful organization in the Gospel of Luke. Right, Luke didn't just sit down and willy-nilly, no, 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 no. The gospel of Luke is crafted. It's organized. There's an intentionality to the gospel of Luke. My good friend Nathan Renner preached a whole series, like a half-year-long series through the book of Luke, and he said to me, this is the 
This is one of the best books in the New Testament. So well organized, so crafted, and I'm going to show you one element of that organization here. We leave that story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, and then we come to a remarkably similar story just a few verses later, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through, where did he pass through, everyone? Passed through Jericho. Just going to open my phone here and make sure I don't go too long. All right, got to hurry up. Verse 2. Uh, now behold, there was a man, and his name was what? How do you say it? Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus. I'm going to go with Zacchaeus. Does anybody know what the name Zacchaeus means? Yeah, I didn't know. I had forgotten, or either I knew and didn't remember, I'd never known. The word actually means pure or innocent, which is fairly ironic since he is not just a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector, which we'll get to actually in this verse. Uh, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Now watch these next four words. And, hey, Milla, you don't want to miss this part. This is like the best part. So hurry up. Wherever you're going, hurry up, because this is, you're literally going to miss the best part. Okay, you too, Layla. Verse 2, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Say these next four words with me if you have your Bibles open. And he was rich. Well, I guess it's too bad for him then. Right? I, I, I mean, Jesus just said, I mean, just, just, just a few verses before, Jesus said it's impossibly hard for a rich man to be saved. It's really, really hard. So much so that the disciples were like, wow, who then could be saved? And so, so we should be feeling like, oh man, too bad for him. Not only is he a chief tax collector, he's rich. So no dice, no good, no luck. And we should just say very briefly that of all of the people in first century Judaism, those that were the most despised, the most hated, the most loathed were tax collectors. More than a Samaritan, more than even a Roman, more than any other, you know, sundry Gentile. The tax collectors were the worst because they were traitorous, right? They were Jews who were actually taking taxes from their own people to benefit the people's oppressors. They were just, they were the most, most loathsome people, which is why it was an absolute scandal that Jesus had called a tax collector to be one of his disciples. And then when that tax collector, Levi Matthew, threw a party for Jesus, Jesus had the audacity to attend the party. And everybody grumbled about it. In fact, they're going to grumble in this very story here. Verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus. And I think this phrase is crucial, who he was. Ah, ah. He sought to see Jesus, who he was, but he could not because of the crowd, because he was short. So clearly, you know, like if Luke Halmai was in this situation, he has no problem. He's going to be able to see Jesus, but this guy is like me. This guy is short, and there's an army of Luke Halmai surrounding Jesus, and he, he can't, and I, I like to say it, the problem is not that everybody else was tall, it's that he was short, right? And so he, he kind of devises a plan, he's familiar with the area, and so he sort of sees the path that Jesus is walking through Jericho, and he says, ah, I know just the spot, runs ahead, anticipates the movements of Jesus, climbs up into a sycamore tree, which is what we find in verse four. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. This is now the second time that we've been told that he wants to see him, who he was, because he was going to pass by that way. He had calculated the route and he saw him coming up. He said, ah, I know just the spot. Verse five. And when Jesus came to the place, and I'm just gonna pause there. Years ago when I was a brand new Christian, like 
Let's see, I was baptized in 96. So this would have been in 1997. I went to an evangelism retreat that was being held in Southern California. And there was a preacher there who was quite old even at that time. And he was the son of maybe the greatest preacher that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has ever had. That man's name was HMS Richards Sr. And the person who I heard preaching was a person named HMS Richards Jr. He was preaching a sermon. I got to hear him preach several sermons. And I'll never forget, he preached on this passage. Not even on this passage, he preached on this verse. Not even on this verse, he preached on those two words. I was a brand new believer. And this, this you know, very dignified, very, he was funny. He had a real sense of humor. Stood up and preached this incredible sermon about the place. And it has stuck with me here, here, here now I am, you know, that was 97, what are we, 2013? Here I am, that, that many years later, more than 25 years later. I remember that sermon. I could almost preach that sermon. It's amazing how God can just take the right sermon at the right time in the right situation if you're in the right place and he can just embed it in your mind and you'll, I will remember that sermon on my deathbed. And his point was, any place can be the place. This is one of the great things about the Christian faith. No longer do we have pilgrimages to holy locations, right? Because every place is a holy place. We actually made this point this last week in the Arise class where you might remember just briefly, um, Jacob is fleeing from Esau. He's, you know, misled his father Isaac. Remember this, Rowan? He's misled his father Isaac. And he's fleeing. He's looking behind, you know, every tree and every rock, thinking that his brother, the skillful, skillful hunter, is going to find him. And at last, he's exhausted. And in exasperation, he says, I can't go any further. And he just lays down, finds a pillow-shaped rock. You know you're in a bad way, right? Come on. And he puts his head on the rock, and he goes to sleep, and then you miss the best part. I told you, you're going to miss it. They missed it. So, so puts his head on a pillow-shaped rock, and then God gives him this incredible vision of what we call Jacob's ladder, right? A staircase or a ladder ascending into the highest heavens and then touching on the ground. And, he, and, and God comes through in a big way for Jacob just when he needed him most. Well, anyway, here's the point of all this. The next day, Jacob wakes up, and he says something like this. I'll paraphrase. He goes, whoa. I didn't know that this was the very gate of heaven. See, he's still thinking in sort of primitive ways. He's thinking that God is constrained by time and space, that it's just a good thing that he hadn't walked further, and it's a good thing that he'd made it that far because he made it to the place. No, 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 no. If he'd gone another 100 meters, that would have been the place. If he had gone a kilometer shorter, that would have been the place because any place can be the place. This could be your place. See, Jesus didn't just come to a place. No, no, no. Zacchaeus has ran ahead. He's climbed up in the sycamore tree, and then the text of Scripture says, when Jesus came to the place, and any place can be your place. Any time can be your time. Because Jesus isn't somewhere. He's everywhere. He's not just available there, and he's not just available then. He's available here, and he's available now for you. And for me, this can be your place this morning. Maybe you need a the place in your life right now. This could be it this morning. Yeah, God could show up this morning and meet you in this place. You might be surrounded by people who are enjoying the sermon and it's a blessing to them, but, but they're having a different experience than you're having because you needed this sermon and this is your place. Yeah, yeah, maybe you aren't gonna come to church and ah, it's, ah, I'd really rather go to the beach today. I'd rather, but somehow, you know, you ended up and here you are and you're like, whoa. Jesus is speaking to me. David Asherick's not speaking to me. Jesus, by his spirit, is speaking to me right now. And I think this could be 
the place that I'm supposed to be. Well, what's even better is that when he comes to the place, look at this. When he came to the place, I'm in verse five, he looked up and saw him. There's our word again, see, saw. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, hurry up and come down because I need to stay at your house. Okay, friends, not only does Jesus meet you at the place, he knows your name. And this is one of the fascinating parallels between this and the rich young ruler. What exactly is the rich young ruler? Oh, that's right, we don't know. We don't know his name. We can say, you know, humorously, that his name was Richard because he was rich. But we don't know his name. But Jesus came to the place, looked up in the tree, and said, Zacchaeus, because Jesus sees you and he knows your name. He knows your name. One of the great stories that we looked at this last week, and I'll just say something about this briefly, it's actually a really sad story. It's an unfortunate story. It's an unnecessary story, as so many stories in the Old Testament are. And this was the story of when, when Abraham, under the advising of Sarah, has unwisely taken Hagar to be his kind of wife slash concubine. And Ishmael, she becomes pregnant, and Ishmael is born, and she flees, Hagar flees, and Jesus shows up and meets this Egyptian slave woman. I mean, Jesus shows up, it's incredible. And when Jesus shows up, he encourages her. He says, it's gonna be okay, I've got you, go back. You're gonna die out here in the wilderness. You have no hope of survival. And then she prays this incredible prayer. She gives this incredible praise. In fact, she actually renames the place. She names it Bir Lahoi Rai, which is to say, I have seen him who sees me. I, I see him who, has see, who sees me. Friends, God sees you. He knows your situation. He knows it perfectly. He knows it comprehensively. He knows it exhaustively. He knows it in the very same way that he knew the rich young ruler situation who came to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, six, seven, eight, nine, five. He knew that situation and he knows your situation and he knows your name. You can say with me and with Hagar of old, I see him who sees me. Zacchaeus set out to see Jesus, who he was, and Jesus now sees him, and he knows his name. We don't know the rich young ruler's name, but we know this guy's name. His name is Zacchaeus. Wow, this is, we're really picking it up now. Okay, watch this. So he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up. I really, I've heard your wife makes great food. I need a place to stay tonight. The Airbnbs are all booked up. I'm coming to your place, verse six. So he hurried and he came down, the rest of verse six, and he received him. First of all, he received him. That's incredible. He welcomes, he receives, he invites Jesus. And then there's an adverb there to alert us how he received him. What was the attitude with which he received Jesus? What's the word there? Yeah, joyfully. Yeah, joyfully. But when they saw it, they being the onlookers who were scandalized by Jesus' affirmation, not only knowing the name, but promising to come to the house of a tax collector. Verse seven, when they saw it, they all complained. Marginal reading says they grumbled saying, ah, look at this, look at this joker, look at this guy. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is short. Oh, no, who is a sinner. Yeah, that's right. They were scandalized by it. Okay, 
just a little bit more here. Verse eight, then Zacchaeus stood and said, this is in the dinner now, this is in the party. This is at least the second such tax collector's party that Jesus attended, the first being Levi Matthews. So people are scandalized by this. In the middle of the party, verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, or maybe it wasn't a party, maybe it was just a dinner. You get the idea. He says, look, Lord, Greek kurios, master, look, Lord, I give half of anything I have taken. No, no, no. I give half of my goods to the... No, 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 no. You have to do it with more enthusiasm than that. I give half of my goods to the... I give half of my goods to the... Poor. And now help me with the math on this. Sam, you're sitting in the back there. You're a, Rod, you're a smart guy. Help me with the math on this. So, so if, I, if I give half, half of my goods to the poor, I got half left, I guess. That's how that works, right? Now, this is the part I'm confused about. He says, if I have taken anything from anyone falsely or dishonestly, I restore 400%. Okay. So let's just say Zacchaeus is worth a cool 10 million equivalent. He's a rich man. He's worth a cool 10 million. Well, he's just promised 5 million to the poor. But if his, if his riches, if his wealth has been gained dishonestly or falsely, how can he pay? I mean, what would be, let's say, back to our 10 million. If all of this has been acquired in a dishonest way, what would, be 400, what would be 400%? He'd have to have 40 million to pay it back. Am I doing the math right there? Right? If he's worth 10 million, by way of illustration, he'd have to give 40 million back. But he's already just promised half to the poor. So this must mean that Zacchaeus is an honest person. It, it must mean that even though, and maybe some other time I'll preach another sermon about this, it must mean that even though people assumed that tax collectors were all a certain way, and no doubt many of them were, not all of them were, were necessarily that way or automatically that way because there's no way mathematically that you can say, I give half to the poor and then I'm going to restore 400% to those that I've wronged if you've been wronging people through your whole life. The, the, it does, the math doesn't work. This must be the testimony of somebody who is saying, I know what people think about me, but I have in my, in my professional life and in my, in my career, I have tried to treat people fairly and well and accurately. And so if anybody can raise an accusation to the contrary, and I have, it can be demonstrated that I have wronged somebody, I'll give them 400%. Jesus never asks for this. There's just no mention in the text of Jesus saying, okay, so here's the deal, as he did with the rich young ruler. No, no, it just, it just flows, and, and I would be tempted to say voluntarily, but it's even more than that. I mean, it flows downright enthusiastically. I mean, it, it, it's joyfully is our adverb, isn't it? I mean, he just stands up, and he, it's just like, I, half of my goods I'm giving to the poor, and if, anybody, if I've defrauded anybody in this town or in this community, I'm going to restore to them 400%. I'm just so happy to have Jesus as a dinner guest. Okay, so let's wrap it up then. <laughs> Jesus, no doubt, verse nine, with great joy, talk about a smile. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Do you know who came to the house before salvation came to the house? Jesus came to the house. And you know what he brought with him? He brought with him salvation. That's exactly right, Cam. See, that's the thing, that's the, that's the order. Yeah, yeah, the order is Jesus and then all the stuff that comes with him. Because, and I know you know this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. I know that many of you know this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Jesus is not a means to an end. 
He's the end. He's not a means or a vehicle to some other end, whether it's heaven or salvation or prosperity. No, no, Jesus is the thing. And and Zacchaeus doesn't come. Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Let's finish up. Verse nine, salvation has come to this house. This guy right here, this guy right here is the son of Abraham. Well, of course he was the son of Abraham in the genealogical sense. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was surrounded most of his ministry by people that were genealogical descendants of Abraham. When he says this man's a descendant of Abraham, he says this guy acts like Abraham. We know, by the way, that in the Genesis account, Abraham was a wildly generous person and a wealthy person too, by the way. Wealthy, generous, magnanimous, you could even say perhaps philanthropic. Verse 10, because the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. The Son of Man, in fact, you could say that this is the most succinct articulation of the ministry of Jesus in all of the Gospels. The Son of Man has come to seek, to look for, to search for, to seek and to save that which is lost. And it happens in the house of a despised, loathed, hated tax collector. Now let's ask our three questions. What's the reason What's the reason that Zacchaeus went to see Jesus? Yeah, to see him. And you remember those words that came after that, Jared? To see him, who he was. That's exactly right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because unlike the rich, let's, let's contrast that with the rich young ruler. What did the rich young ruler come looking for? Yeah, eternal life. He was not interested in the man. He was, inter- he was interested in the thing that the man offered. What's Zacchaeus interested in? Jesus. He has heard, no doubt, that this is the kind of guy, this is the kind of rabbi against all social convention who actually invited a tax collector to be in his innermost circle, to be one of his disciples, one of his pupils. This is a new kind of rabbi. And I have another presentation. Maybe I'll preach that someday. But but the the word was on the street with the tax collectors that this guy was different. This, This was a whole different situation. And so he wants to see this guy. What kind of a rabbi does this? What kind of rabbi acts like this? The stories were circulating. The rumors were in the air. And so Zacchaeus doesn't go looking to Jesus as a means to some other end. He just wants Jesus. Friends, I want to tell you today, Jesus is the thing. The one thing that the rich young ruler didn't have wasn't his riches and it wasn't his wealth. It's It's that God wasn't the priority. God was a means to some other end. Torah was a means to some other end. I do meet Christians and they'll have these really funny, cute, semi-humorous conversations about whether or not something is a salvational issue. Of course, this language is all artificial and just, we just invent these ideas. Friends, it's not about salvation issues as if the thing where, oh, we have this anxiety and this low-grade state of continual fear if I'm in or I'm out. Am I in or am I out? Am I out? Am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? No, no, friends. No, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. In the morning when I rise, just give me Jesus. We didn't talk about this. You just chose that song. And when I come to die, just just give me Jesus. Just just get Jesus into your house, have Jesus over for a dinner party, and all that other stuff will take care of itself. Jesus will say, today, salvation has come to the Stoyanovich households. Come right here today to this house because you're in the place. Right? Salvation has come to the Mahano household, not because you're looking for God to be a means to some greater end. God is the greatest possible end. So that's number one, the reason that he comes. Number two, what was his response? What was Zacchaeus' response to Jesus? How did he receive him? Joyfully, as contrasted with the rich young ruler, how did he receive him? Very sorrowfully. This is purposeful. The rich young ruler, very sorrowful at the invitation of Jesus because he sees Jesus as a means or a conduit to some other end. Zacchaeus, with great 
enthusiasm, energy, and joy says, oh, you got to come to my place. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be, and then he stands up and just, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, 400%. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And then finally, what was the result? Well, the result of the encounter with the rich young ruler is that he went away very sorrowful. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, it's really hard for a rich man to be saved. As we've already noted, that's not about riches. That's about anything that is the one thing. How did, what happened with Zacchaeus? What's the result of their encounter? Today, salvation has come to this house because salvation comes with Jesus. He's the thing. Amen? Amen. Okay, so that's the sermon. That's the sermon. So, just a few quick points of application. Just a few quick points. Um, Number one, Jesus knows your name. He also knows the things that you wish he didn't know and that you don't want anybody else to know. He knows the one thing. The good news, though, is that Jesus is the kind of person with whom you can trust the one thing. If the rich young ruler, imagine this alternate reality. Imagine in this situation, at just the moment where Jesus says you only lack one thing and the rich young ruler goes through a moment of intense internal personal struggle, falls to his knees and says, Rabbi, I'm a greedy person. I, I, I don't know how you knew, but you knew. And this is, uh, I, well, this story goes totally differently, right? So, so, so it's not about having a one thing. It's about not giving the one thing to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You and I can imagine that story goes totally differently if he just turns that thing over to Jesus. So that's, I suppose, point of application number one. There are many. Jesus knows your one thing. Just give it to him. Number two, I suppose, a point of application would be that Jesus knows your name. He knows who you are. He knows your situation intimately, exhaustively, perfectly. Everything about your situation is known to God. And this should be a cause not of great anxiety to us. It would be a cause of great anxiety if Jesus was like the media and he was going to exploit and then tell the world about us and then cancel us socially, professionally, or whatever. No, 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 no. It should be such a consolation to us because the God who knows all things loves anyway. Back to the Mark 10 account, it says that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and loved him. He knew and he loved him. Yet Jesus knows our situation. He knows our name. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our faults. He knows our strengths. And he loves us. Amen? Okay, and then I suppose there are a lot of applications, but the really big point that I want to make here is we need to get past this really infantile, even, I guess, adolescent thinking that we're doing all the stuff that we're doing religiously to some other end, whatever that end is. No, no, Jesus is the point. This is what he meant when he said, you search the scriptures because you think them, you, you, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But all that stuff's about me. Jesus is saying, I'm the point. I'm the point. And we can, and I myself as a pastor have done this. I freely admit this. We can in our various, you know, religious journeys and wanderings, we can find ourselves where religion becomes an end in itself. And, and we find ourselves really passionate about, and there's nothing wrong with passion, of course, But we must always bear in mind that the point of religion is always supposed to be, when properly understood and properly properly executed, 
an opportunity to engage, to encounter the living God. Jesus is the point, right? And when we get Jesus, we get all the goodies. We get all the stuff that comes with Jesus, but the goodies and the stuff are never the point, including eternal life. Jesus says to us today, salvation has come to this house, to this house. And the reason it came is that we invited Jesus in. We invited him into not only our homes, but into our hearts, into our finances, into our lives, into our computers, into our social situations. We just invited Jesus into our lives. And when Jesus comes, he comes with all the stuff. Amen? Amen. So is anybody here today want to say with me, you know what, this is, this is a place for me. I needed to hear this. This is my place. This is a place for me right here. Dave, Robbie, I love you. Hands nice and high, Rhiannon, I love you too. Yeah, amen. This is a place for me. Campbell, I love you. Father in heaven, we love you. We know that's not the big story. The big story is your love for us. And today, we just receive Jesus. We accept Jesus. Father, we have a, a thing, a one thing. And some of us have a two thing. Some of us have a three thing. Father, we bring our things, our failures, our inconsistencies our mistakes, our hypocrisies, our meanness, our unkindness, our lack of generosity. Father, we, whatever that thing is, our lust, we bring that thing or those things to you and we say, God, this is who we are, to which you say, yeah, I knew that all along. I just needed you to bring it. So, Father, we bring that here today and we want to say with great enthusiasm, as did Zacchaeus of old, come to my house, come into my home, Spend time with me, eat with me. And Father, for some of us, you might be strongly convicting us to reorient our priorities with our time, our talents, our finances. I know that right now, Kingscliff is in the midst of a series on stewardship. Father, convict us in our souls so that we will orient ourselves to eternity and not to the, the temporal. We've seen with the most recent flood and, and with the things that are happening all over the world, Father, that these things will pass away. There's a, there's a, there's a transience to the temporal world, but Father, there's, in, there's a permanence to the eternal world. Help us to calibrate ourselves to the things that matter most. We love you and we thank you, Father. You've been with us today. In the morning when we rise, give us Jesus. Dark midnight was my cry, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus is our prayer in his name. Let everyone say amen. amen and amen. Turn to the person next to you and say, this has been my place.